Okay, good afternoon. I'm Bruce Steffes. I'm a, a general surgeon who spent most of the last 14 years in the developing world in various sorts, and I've been asked to talk about abdominal pain. Surgery in the, in the uh, developing world is certainly different. Uh, there's different diseases, there's different perspectives, different procedures. Uh, clearly, a lot of times the pathology is far more advanced. Uh, there are fewer caregivers, and there are a lot less resources. Um, there are some diseases that we think of when we go to medical school or we go to nursing school. We're taught about the common medical things and everybody knows about. And those are going to be things like diverticulitis, acute and chronic cholecystitis, appendicitis, small bowel obstruction. Those are the things that on general surgery here in America, that's what you spend your time on. They're actually relatively uncommon uh, in, the, in most of the rest of the world. Uh, instead, you see things like this, primary peritonitis, perforated duodenal ulcers, much more common. We used to have that in the States uh, before everybody was on omeprazole, uh, but uh, there it's still relatively common. Uh, volvulus, uh, relatively uncommon here, very common in certain parts of Africa at least. Uh, adult inosusception, rare as hen's teeth here, fairly common there. Uh, tubercular peritonitis and pig bell are uh, some of the diseases that we see. And uh, we'll talk about what pig bell is in a minute. Uh, the um, uh, appendicitis uh, at the Ghana hospitals. Now, you have to realize that when you're looking at these statistics, you have to look at it with a cultural filter. At Ghana, when they reported their studies, they said that the most common thing they saw was appendicitis and perforated typhoid. Now, you have to understand, of course, that most of the people who could afford to go to the university were getting there late, and so a lot of other diseases, they may have just died on the way. So uh, those statistics are a little perhaps biased. Um, Dave Thompson at uh, Bangalore reported these kind of things. The things he saw most commonly were strangulated hernias uh, causing abdominal pain, appendicitis, volvulus, uh, adhesive small bowel obstruction, and perforated typhoid being relatively uncommon. And Tenwick Hospital uh, looked at uh, volvulus as their most common cause. Uh, they also reported uh, appendicitis and perforated peptic ulcer disease, trauma, and perforated typhoid uh, being relatively uncommon. The thing to, to realize is that uh, in Africa, it turns out that, you know the saying that uh, hoofbeats are horses, not zebras. Well, a lot of times they're zebras and not horses. And so we have to kind of go into the setting with a different perspective as to the kind of diseases and things that we're going to think about. Uh, so I'm going to give you a case. This is a five-year-old little boy in Papua New Guinea. He comes in. Uh, the history was that he had had a pig feast five uh, days before. They'd had a big uh, clan celebration, and they roasted a pig and uh, ate until they couldn't see straight. Uh, he came in with a four-day abdominal pain with fever, nausea, and diarrhea. He had intermittent cramps, especially when he ate, and uh, when he drank, his white count was 14,000, and his abdominal, was initially, abdominal exam was initially soft, and this was his x-ray, which you can see is relatively nonspecific. So what's your differential diagnosis in this young man? Sorry? Small bowel obstruction. Small bowel obstruction, possibly. What else? Pig bell. Okay, for all of those, you know pig bell. Uh, what else? Parasites. Parasites would be a possibility. You, you really don't see much in the way of small bowel obstruction, and, and, uh, but it could be. Yeah, I'd expect more of a small bowel picture. What else? Common things are common in five-year-olds. Sorry? Gastroenteritis. Gastroenteritis would be a possibility. Appendicitis. Sorry? Typhoid would be a possibility. Okay. Uh, so with this story, you really don't know. The most important part in this history is the pig feast, okay? And so this is pig bell. Uh, they uh, made that diagnosis, 
and they made him NPO. They put a nasogastric tube down, and they put him on antibiotics, and we'll talk about which ones in just a moment. And then uh, they watched him for a while. His NG tube was dark. Uh, they didn't have guaiac testing, but they were suspicious that it was bloody. Uh, they uh, had dark diarrhea, again, the same kind of suspicion, and the abdomen became a surgical abdomen. It got very tender with peritonitis. And so anybody want to change your diagnosis? Perforated something. Okay. It could be necrotizing enterocolitis, but clostridium perforations is most likely. Pig bell. Enteritis, uh, necrotans, or necrotizing enteritis. This was a disease that was first reported in medieval Europe. If you go back into the uh, old literature, they talk about this disease. And then we saw it next in any significance after World War II. In Germany and East Africa, it was reported. And there it was uh, a Darmbrandt, uh, which literally means a fire in your gut or gut fire. Um, and uh, what was happening, it was always in a situation of severe malnutrition. In the 1960s, uh, when they started looking at the highlands of Papua New Guinea and they got enough people in there to actually, who weren't being eaten, uh, cannibalism continued into the 70s in that area, um, they came across this disease and saw that it had, uh, had uh, resurfaced with exactly the same situation and they were getting cultural positive, as was mentioned with Clostridia perfringens. Um, at uh, one time, it turns out that pig bell was the most common cause for acute abdominal pain in kids in uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, they actually came up with a vaccine for it, and uh, that uh, uh, prior to that was the most common cause for a laparotomy for that. Sorry, that seems to be a little touchy. Uh, pig bell is an interesting disease. In, uh, in Papua New Guinea, at least, it has a definite male predominance, and it's probably because the males are treated with preference, and so they get to eat more, and they get to have more protein, and the, kid, the girls get what's lovers left. Uh, 70% of these kids will present as uh, under eight, uh, 10 years of age, uh, and we don't ever see it in infants, and it's thought that they're probably protected from the maternal antibodies, IgA, across the placenta, etc. Uh, we do see it occasionally in young adults. Um, it is much more common in the dry season, um, and it's probably because that's the time that you go visit your relatives and put together a big pig fest feast, and so uh, that's when it's going to happen. Uh, the bacteriology, as we mentioned, is the type C, Clostridia perfringens, uh, and it's a, a, a spore-forming uh, Clostridia, of course, like all of them are, and it's found in stool and pig uh, uh, stool and soil. Uh, the spores are very heat-stable. Of course, this is the thing you worry about when you're canning with Clostridia perfringens and other uh, type A uh, toxins, uh, and so you really have to heat this very, very well. One of the problems is, is the highlands of Papua New Guinea are high enough that water boils at 95 degrees uh, centigrade, and so it never gets quite hot enough to kill these spores unless you really work at it for a long time. Uh, type A is, again, the, the uh, food poisoning. Type C is what we see here. It's a beta toxin. Now, the beta toxin is kind of interesting, uh, under normal circumstances, if I gave you beta toxin to drink, you'd probably be fine because your pancreas has got trypsin in it and other proteases, and it would break it down and you wouldn't get sick. Uh, however, uh, if, it, uh, if you didn't break it down, then that toxin starts to have a direct uh, effect on the lining and starts to interfere with uh, the blood supply to this, and it literally becomes uh, necrotic and starts to uh, uh, thrombose the arteries and the veins as well. So the trypsin in these kids has very low activities for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, the main food in this area is sweet potato, cow cow. 
And uh, the sweet potato has a fascinating anti-trypsin effect. And so uh, their trypsin is not working, so they're eating sweet potato all the time. And as you're well aware, of course, uh, sweet potato is pure starch, and so these kids are all protein malnourished as well uh, as part of it. And the other issue is that the incidence of ascariasis of roundworm is sky high. And roundworms, interestingly enough, uh, interfere with trypsin activity as well. And so with the combination of those things, plus poor hygiene, contamination of the food, etc., the clostridia is getting into the food on a regular basis. And so when these kids who have not had any meat in their meal for since the last pig feast uh, eat literally pounds of food if they can get it, uh, this uh, clostridia, which is there, starts to actually digest the protein that's in the pig meat and starts to produce this huge amount of, uh, of toxin, which is not being broken down. Uh, what do you see on these kids? They've got blood and pus in their stool. They've got literally a series of uh, severe enteritis, and they've got these little micro ulcers. Uh, in some places, it can literally cause a transmural uh, infarction, so the gut literally dies, and as uh, somebody mentioned, it sounded like something perforated. A lot of times that's exactly what's happening in these kids. They've perforated all the way through. Uh, they can get gas gangrene with the clostridia getting into the, uh, to the wall through the disrupted mucosa, and uh, you'll get a pseudomembranous, very much like a clostridia difficile kind of uh, picture that we see here in the, in the States with the pseudomembranous colitis that goes along with it. Uh, it classically affects uh, the proximal gut much more than does the distal gut. So jejunum is more than ileum and cecum more than the rest of the colon. There's actually four types of pig bell. We're going to start with the uh, type 4, and that's actually the mildest disease. Uh, these kids just get a mild diarrhea. Uh, they'll get diagnosed with gastroenteritis maybe. Uh, most of the time, they're just fine. Uh, the next most uh, common one is what's known as a subacute surgical uh, these are kids who initially come in, and they're not real sick, but they progress, or they just smolder. They just kind of never quite get better, and with time, uh, you'll get some scarring and some narrowing and uh, stenosis of the gut. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that uh, most of these kids, if you don't operate on them, 49% of them will die. So this is a very significant, even though they don't get quite as sick as the others, they just waste away. Uh, the acute surgical ones are like the ones that we described in our caseload. These are kids who come in, and they come in with either small bowel obstruction or clearly a gut that's not working, uh, acting like they're strangulated or with peritonitis. Uh, they have a significant mortality. Interestingly enough, their mortality is lower. Why? Because they were obviously sick when they came in, and they got taken to the operating room a little bit sooner, so they don't die quite so often. Uh, the ones that terrify you are the ones that come in in full-blown septic shock. And that's the toxic shock kind of picture, and 85% uh, of those will die uh, because you can't ever quite catch up on these little malnourished uh, immunosuppressed kids, and uh, many of them will die before they ever get to the hospital. The clinical course, it usually starts within about 48 hours. Uh, in our case scenario, it actually started 24 hours, thing, but 24 to 48 hours, they'll start getting sick, and they start up with all sorts of gastroenteritis. It can be as light as a, as a week later that they get sick, and it's basically that of gastroenteritis, and the only clue that you get is there's blood in it. There's digested blood in the, in the uh, stool or in the, in the uh, nasogastric output. Uh, they look sick. They're tachycardic. They're febrile. They often look sicker than your examination and your white counts tell you. It's very much like we have ischemic gut here in the United States. They just look too sick for, for what is supposed to be wrong with them. 
the symptoms are very much consistent with this ischemia, this thrombosis. They have pain out of proportion to all the rest of their symptoms. And often, just like those people who have um, claudication of their small intestine, they have a mesenteric ischemia, uh, they often will get worse with the food. They, they look good, and if they're hungry, they eat, and now the pain comes back. Um, if you're in that subacute group, uh, sometimes the malnutrition and the fibrosis has uh, gone on long enough that they'll end up with this partial obstruction and strictures and malabsorption, etc. Uh, they die because clearly all the electrolyte abnormalities that go along with that. How do you make the diagnosis when you're in the middle of the highlands of Papua New Guinea? History and, and exam. Uh, that's the, it's the high index of suspicion. I tell my students they will never make the diagnosis of which they never think. Okay? If, you, if it doesn't cross your mind, you'll never make the diagnosis. But when you make the diagnosis, it's really relatively easy to make that diagnosis. Uh, that early action is important. You've got to reverse that whole um, fluid shift and the thrombosis that's going on, very much like necrotizing enterocolitis in little kids. It's a very similar disease. Uh, huge amounts of fluid. Get their cardiac output up. Keep them perfused. Uh, antibiotics from the very beginning. And hopefully you're going to avoid having to operate on them. You want to decompress the small bowel to minimize the tension on the wall of the small intestine to interfere with this, uh, to pre preclude the ischemia, etc. Uh, if you're in a place where there is no surgeons, get that kid out of there. Get him to somebody who's capable of taking care of the surgery. This is not something that you sit on if you can help it. And by the time they need surgery, they needed it yesterday, uh, and it's too late to start to transfer them. Uh, how do you make that diagnosis? The x-rays, as you saw, are relatively nonspecific. There's really nothing that is diagnostic about those x-rays. The only possible exception is if you could see gas in the small intestine. If you see linear gas, that would give you a clue that there's some sort of gangrenous portion going on. The bloody nasogastric tube, usually the white count is pretty high, as it is in ischemia as well. There are serological tests, but you have to understand that we're in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. And there's no money for these tests, and so there's not much market, so it's actually very difficult to find those serologic tests. Um, you can do blood cultures, but if you didn't have money for the test, you don't have the money for the blood cultures either, and so that becomes more problematic. Um, ascites on ultrasound, and if you tap it and it's bloody, again, that's going to be a sign for, for uh, surgery as well. Most important thing Fluid and electrolytes, fluid and electrolytes, and fluid and electrolytes. Get them hydrated very rapidly, very quickly. Uh, correct any abnormalities you can identify and correct their anemia. Often these kids are malnourished, and so they're coming in with low uh, uh, hematocrits anyway. And uh, this is one of these situations where the oxygen carrying capacity is very critical. So you need to get your hemoglobin up, the kind of thing that you might let them go out and play with. It's no big deal. But in this situation, the ability of the blood to carry the oxygen is very critical. And so you've got to get your hemoglobin up to something acceptable. From an antibiotic standpoint, you obviously want to aim towards clostridia. So it's going to be some sort of decent anaerobic coverage. And uh, a lot of these kids, when they come in, are, like this child, near perforation. And so you would often add both gram-positive and gram-negative coverage in addition to the anaerobic. So triple antibiotics or some combination, depending what you have available to you. Uh, at the same time, uh, if they are not too surgically sick, you will start considering wherein you're going to start, start treating their roundworm uh, so that we can get rid of them uh, as well. Uh, Often they may have malaria. You might have to uh, treat that as a confounding factor as well. 
Uh, if you're in a place where you have hyperalimentation or TPN, which is rare, uh, that might be something that you'll need to consider. Uh, anti-serum is, uh, was used for a long time uh, because this is a toxin, so you could use a toxoid, uh, but it, uh, an antitoxin rather, but it's really not available and it doesn't work all that well. So early on what you do is you, you treat them as you've done. You wait about 24 hours if you can. If they're reasonably stable, you start refeeding them relatively slowly, and they do reasonably well. If at 48 hours they haven't improved almost completely, you're going to have to consider a laparotomy so that they don't go into that subacute uh, category that we talked about. Um, if they have persistent uh, small bowel obstruction, if they continue to have NG output, if they're continually septic, obviously they're going to have to be operated on. If they... Uh, go downhill rapidly, they're going to need emergency surgery. Um, often that, that call for surgery is a, is a judgment call. You, you can't really come up with just somebody who's seen it before and said, these kids don't do well if we don't operate at this point. And so it's judgment as a major part of it. Uh, what you're going to need is to do an expiration and resect whatever piece of gut appears to be not viable. Um, one of the questions that always gets into is, you know, you've got some dusky bowel. Do you remove that? Do you take the risk of short gut? Do you leave it? Uh, are you going to do a second look operation? Uh, if I do take it out, is the vascularity good enough? I can sew it back together, or do I make an ostomy? And uh, one of the things that's very clear is that an ostomy is not an operation. It's a disease, uh, especially in these environments. So, you know, when you do the ostomies, yes, you may save their life, but you're going to have to uh, have a reoperation, put them back together, and struggle with that. And uh, as I've mentioned, which patients do I look at tomorrow to see if I did the right thing? And obviously, any patient that doesn't do well gets a second look operation. Uh, what do you find? Uh, the bowel is thickened. It's obviously inflamed. You'll have these huge lymph nodes. Uh, there's a so-called tiger striping. I'll show you a picture of it. This disease tends to skip. It'll involve this part of the gut and then that part and that part down, downstream. Uh, if you open it up, you're going to see mucosal ulcerations and occasionally perforations. So this is a case where you can see these massive uh, uh, mesenteric lymph nodes uh, with this disease responding to the toxin. And this uh, gut is actually tiger-striped to some extent, although they've got their hands in the way. Uh, this is that tiger-stripe. You can see that these kind of uh, transverse uh, inflamed areas. Here's what the, excuse me, uh, this is a skipping. There's normal gut disease, normal gut, etc. The mucosal ulcerations, when you open this particular patient, you can see these little ulcerations and they can perforate and be part of the problem. This one has not proceeded to necrosis, but apparently was felt to be diseased enough that it needed to come out. What do you do post-op? Good care. Uh, take care of their uh, CBC, transfusions, potassium levels, and nutrition. And most of these kids do amazingly well once they uh, take care of them. Now, how do we prevent pig bell? Um, there used to be an excellent vaccine against the toxin. But what happened is in the 90s, um, as the disease was responding to this very well, the government at Papua New Guinea said they're not going to pay for it anymore. Well, the average patient couldn't afford it, and it was definitely an orphan drug. Uh, there was no money to be made from this. It took more money to make it than it did to, to um, sell it, uh, the profit to be made. And so they quit making this drug. Uh, this immunization. And so, unfortunately, we're seeing the disease coming back. The only thing that's helped us in the meantime is they've actually done a little bit better in terms of nutrition and that sort of thing, so the kids aren't quite as sick. But they've done some recent studies on antibodies, and uh, there's no question that the disease, they're seeing the, the clostridia by the antibody test, but it's just not enough to quite make them sick, and most of the kids are surviving. Um, 
So obviously changing uh, the dietary habits if you can, uh, getting them off the cow-cow, uh, cooking at a much higher temperature, uh, making sure the pig is well done uh, so that you're killing the posterity would help, and obviously education and getting rid of the ascaris would help. Okay, here's another study then. Uh, those of you who are familiar with this disease already know the diagnosis by looking at the picture. But the story is, a 10-year-old uh, Togolese boy, he's in the dry season, he's got a history of fevers and malaise. He's been sick for a couple of weeks. He's had intermittent nausea and diarrhea for the last week or so. He had been went to the local health clinic, was treated for malaria, and uh, 48 hours ago he got worse and hasn't eaten since that time. They brought him into the hospital, and this is what he looked like. What's your differential diagnosis? It's not pig bell. Okay, what else? Sorry? Ah, went on, sorry. What's the diagnosis? Typhoid fever. Excellent. You guys got that there. Okay. Anybody that's ever seen a sick child with that look on their face, that's the so-called typhoid facies. Okay? Do you see that? You can make that diagnosis from across the room. Now, there's nothing else that looks quite like that. Okay? So uh, what are you going to do with this? Uh, this uh, history is absolutely classic. Uh, typhoid fever is much more common in the dry season, and it's largely because it's a waterborne contaminant. And so they're going to go and walk their two miles down to the local creek, and they're going to get their uh, water out of the same place that everybody else has been dumping their sewage, and the cows have been walking in, and so forth. And so they're going to pick it up with the water. So it's much worse during dry season because everything gets uh, condensed in that area. Um, the cause for this disease is uh, salmonella. Uh, it's actually a couple of other diseases as well. There are non-typhoid uh, salmonella, that the paratyphoids, that can cause this disease as well. It's a disease of poor sanitation, usually seasonal for the reasons that we've mentioned about. Now, this is kind of an entering history. We have an idea. I think many of us uh, went through and we thought a typhoid fever, that's a diarrheal disease, or typhoid fever, that's a fever disease. Uh, and the answer is not going on by itself. Uh, not necessarily true. Um, what often happens with these various types is that there, it comes on. There's going to be an incubation period of oh, seven to ten days or so, and then you start to become sick. And as, I don't know if you can see this very well, but what's going to happen is uh, histologically, the Peyer's patches, remember Peyer's patches are those immunologic like micro uh, appendices, uh, lymph nodes in the, in the gut uh, wall. They'll become hyperplastic, and then it becomes... Uh, to the point that they can die. It becomes a hyperimmune situation, and the tissue starts to die. It will then often ulcerate, and if it ulcerates severely enough, it perforates. And that process takes three or four weeks before that happens. And so these kids will come in often with this kind of low-grade fever. There's no particular pattern. They don't feel good. It's a nonspecific sort of diagnosis. And almost invariably in Africa, uh, fever translates to malaria. And so you treat them for malaria, but they don't get better. Um, and so those of you that are familiar with a lot of the outpatient health clinics, they'll treat them for the wonderful disease of typhoid malaria, uh, which doesn't exist. Uh, but they'll give them ciprofloxacin or chloramphenicol and malaria to everybody. Um, the problem is, is that uh, many of the older antibiotics don't work for malaria or for typhoid anymore, and they'll continue to be sick. Uh, the uh, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea is often carried on in the second week, and it's often not till the third week that they actually get boku sick, as they talk about in our area of the country. 
Um, it's usually a four-week disease, so that first week they've got that fever and that headache and the abdominal pain. By week three, they'll get typhoid uh, that state, they'll look like that. Their belly becomes very, very distended. Uh, they've got disordered mentation. They'll get really toxic. And usually, with proper antibiotics, they'll get better. However, it's important to realize that there's a series of complications. Let me make sure I don't, I don't mind lying to you. I just want to know what I'm lying to you. So let me get the statistics just right here. Um, about 1.5 to 10%, depending on what series that you look at, they will, when they ulcerate, they'll bleed. So some of these patients will come on with an upper GI bleed. Occasionally it's lower GI, but they'll have an upper GI bleed as part of these, of these symptoms. That's usually in the third to fourth week. If it's in the small intestine, that's just awful because you can't find it. Uh, and even if you operate on them, you often can't find the bleeding site. So that's, that's a real struggle when that happens. I hate that. Only 1% to 5% of the people will actually perforate. And those are the patients, again, usually about the third or fourth week. But when you perforate, that's where most of the mortality comes from. Now, the other thing that you have to remember with typhoid is there are a series of other weird symptoms. And one of the symptoms is a so-called transverse myelitis. These people can have this vague and wondrous disease for two weeks, and they wake up paralyzed because they've literally had this infectious process in their spinal cord, and that's an issue. So when you look at the labs, uh, they often are leukopenic, okay, and not thrombocyte, not, uh, not elevated, and they often have a thrombocytopenia, okay? And so these people uh, have these low numbers. Often they are also bradycardic rather than tachycardic. You'll see that as well as a sign. So someone with a low heart rate, you wonder about this. The best and maybe the only real legitimate way of making this diagnosis is a culture. But in most of our clinics and most of our nation hospitals, we can't do that. So we're stuck uh, trying to make the diagnosis. Uh, as you are well aware, if you've been out there, they'll use a, a Weedall test or a Vidal test uh, or Vidal test, depending on what country you're from. Um, and uh, the problem with the Vidal test is that it's really nearly useless. It's great in terms of looking at whole cultures and the incidence of disease. It's really not very good for a given patient. Uh, what I personally do is I carry a 10-shilling coin, and I just flip it up, and then yes, no. And it's equally accurate. Um, <laughs> This is an interesting, uh, you'll see it being misused. They'll send people home who are clearly sick with typhoid because the VDAL was negative. Uh, you'll see other people that, uh, well, you're treating them forever uh, with antibiotics because the VDAL is still positive. You have to understand the disease. It really doesn't help you in terms of duration of the disease, and it really isn't good for the diagnosis itself. So, unfortunately, it ends up being somewhat clinical if you don't have the cultures. Now, if you have somebody who is acutely ill and they've got an acute abdomen, that's an easy diagnosis. There's no question about that. Uh, you're going to give them fluids. You're going to put a nasogastric tube, and you're going to uh, give them broad-spectrum antibiotics, and not just for the typhoid but for everything because, of course, whatever gut flora they had is now all over. Um, I will tell you that one of the most important things you can do is to make sure they hear about Jesus Christ before you take them back. Okay? You've always got enough time to give them a chance to accept Christ, because uh, some of the patients uh, will not make it. Uh, one of the uh, career missionaries that's here at this particular conference, I sat to him, and he's a university-trained surgeon, and he's superb. He could operate on me and mine at up, and, and he was telling me about this case in which he had a 17-year-old boy that came in critically ill, and he did a first-class resuscitation, put in the central line, gave him the fluids, gave him the antibiotics, got the operating room ready, and rushed him back there and did he had multiple perforations and a lot of stuff. Uh, in there, got it all cleaned out, did a 
technically it was a tour de force. It was great. And the patient never woke up in the recovery room. And he was there just really kind of kicking himself, kind of frustrated. And one of the nurses came up and said, why did you do that? Well, as a surgeon, he's kind of offended by that. What do you mean, why did I do that? I just, you know, I just did a world-class resuscitation, a good-class operation. Some people come in sick. And she said, no. Why did you take him to the, to the OR without talking to him about Jesus Christ? And I will tell you that that man will have tears running down his face if he tells that story to this day. Always remember that no matter what we do medically, the best we can do is 60 or 70 years. But if we introduce him to Jesus Christ, we've got eternal healing. That's our priority. It used to be that we treated typhoid with ampicillin and chloramphenicol, and that's still, of course, uh, on the world drug list, and that's the drugs you can get. The problem is, is that, unfortunately, most of them are not sensitive anymore. So that's not a great drug of choice. Uh, we thought everything was solved when ciprofloxacin came along, the fluoroquinolones, and unfortunately, because, again, in Africa, you can go down and buy one pill or two pills or three pills at the, at the market, uh, the resistance for those drugs is skyrocketing. So, unfortunately, uh, third-generation cephalosporins are probably the best option at the present time, and they're often hard to come by. But that's your first choice. Uh, this is that little boy who is sick, and you can see that he has stopped by the national healer and has had his little incantations and animations and, and uh, all sorts of things for the, for the animism. And so that's what that's on there. Um, when do you operate for typhoid? Well, clearly, we used to, we all heard the stories about typhoid Mary and how it sits in your gallbladder. The answer is that's a very rare and probably never indication anymore. Uh, hemorrhage, certainly, if they're bleeding, you have to operate on them. can be really difficult. The perforations, you have to operate on those. We'll talk about those in, in just a moment. Mortality is high. So how do you know? Well, any of you uh, that are doing neonatal intensive care unit, you've actually got it down pretty well. You already know what the indications for surgery for neonatal, for necrotizing enoclase in a little kid are. That's exactly what they are in an adult. It's when you have a persistent mass that's not going away. They're not going better, so presumably there's an abscess or a matted area, especially if you look at the abdominal wall and there's erythema. That means the infection's coming on through there, so you can operate on those. Uh, if you have diffuse peritonitis, clearly. If you did a peritoneal lavage and you've got a pus and bacteria in there, that's that's pretty easy. Uh, if they don't improve on medical therapy, that's uh, you have to decide how long you're going to do that. Don't wait too long. Sometimes you'll have somebody that comes in and you're suspicious and uh, you get an x-ray and what you're hoping for is you'd see pneumoperitoneum, but you don't see one. And so what do you do with those folks? You examine them every six hours and x-rays every six hours until you decide they're better or they need to go to the operating room. Uh, don't go home to bed and say you'll check them in the morning. Uh, that can be disastrous. So here is an example of, of a typhoid case. You can see on the right a massive pneumoperitoneum on that right side. And here's one where it's a lot less obvious, just a little bit of air there. Either one of those in the right setting is more than adequate to get you to the operating room. When you get there, these Peyer's patches are on the anti-mesenteric portion of the intestine opposite the mesentery, and you'll see these little punched-out ulcers like this. just looks like somebody took a paper punch and, and punched them. And, of course, all the contents around there. Uh, you can see that one on that side has multiple perforations, and this one has just a single perforation. If you have a choice, pick the one on the right. Okay. Um, if there are multiple perforations, there's up to three, all you really do is over-sew them. You don't have to do anything fancy. Just do some sort of stitch that brings the serosa snugly across that, and so it's sealed, and that will usually be enough. Um, you will have to 
lavage the belly out, get all that fibrin and bacteria out if you can. Do your best to irrigate and irrigate and irrigate and irrigate. We all know the old thing that the solution to pollution is dilution. Uh, so uh, you're going to irrigate and irrigate and irrigate with these kids. Um, consider a second look operation if they don't get better. Uh, in 24 hours, you might have to go back and look and see if you've missed one or whether sometimes you didn't see the part that was about to perforate and it perforated on you in the meantime, so consider going back. Uh, do uh, consider uh, retention sutures uh, in some of these kids or some sort of closure because their nutrition is often just abysmal and uh, what you don't want is their guts in your hands a few days later. That's not cool. Uh, I know all the stuff about retention sutures and how they're not supposed to be done anymore and all stuff, there are still times when it's an appropriate thing to do, in my opinion. When in doubt, they'll tolerate a negative laparotomy uh, better than they'll tolerate a misdiagnosis. Okay? And so this is the uh, open method of CT scanning. Uh, <laughs> open there. Uh, one thing to just keep in mind, you don't see it very often, and that's typhoid cholecystitis. This happens especially in little kids. And they'll get an acute uh, cholecystitis. Now, most of us don't think of acute cholecystitis in seven-year-olds. I mean, it's just not in our differential in any, any environment. Uh, but these kids uh, can get very, very sick and keep it in mind. And because you didn't think about it, they're often gangrenous when you get in there. So it's treated like an acute cholecystitis anywhere else. But just realize in this setting that's an issue. Now, a bowel obstruction is one of the, the leading causes. One of the, we've already mentioned that we don't have a lot of... Um, uh, adhesions uh, in these areas, and uh, the, certainly colon cancer is less common, and diverticulitis is less common. Uh, we do have some other issues that come along. So here's a case. Here's an eight-year-old female. She presented with abdominal swelling, pain, and vomiting. She's in the, Cre in the uh, Kenyan Highlands. Her white count's 14,000. She has a 6% eosophilia, uh, hemoglobin 8.9, and on examination, she had this mildly distended abdomen, and a sausage-shaped uh, right lower quadrant mass was palpated in the right quadrant. What is your diagnosis? Interception would be a possibility. Sorry? Parasites. Parasites, what kind? Um, Ascaris would be one of them. Okay. Anything else? Sorry? Amoebiasis. Okay. Could conceivably. Sorry? Volvulus would be a, a possibility, although the x-ray is not really suspicious. This x-ray actually gives you the diagnosis. You see this little area right here? And you see the air going along all those worms? So this is the worm, and this is a mass of worms uh, in this area. And you can make this diagnosis on plain film. If you did a study... If you're going to do a small bowel study, use gastrographin, water-soluble, don't use barium. But you'll get a 1,000 nice upper GI studies at the price of one. You'll see all the worms, upper GIs as well. Roundworms are interesting. They only cause trouble in two situations. One is when they migrate and one is when they don't. Okay? So, uh, in migrating, as you know, the roundworms are uh, literally, when you, when you take the egg and the larval form, it migrates through your GI tract into the vascular system, goes up uh, into your esophagus, you swallow it, 
It comes out of your, goes to your lungs, comes out of your lungs and swallow it, and you can get the Leffler syndrome with the eosinophilic pneumonia and the coughing and all that sort of thing. So some of these people you'll see that will have this pneumonia and keep that in mind. Um, the other thing is that any time these worms are disturbed, they start to move for new, new housing. So um, if you have biliary problems, you can have a worm causing it. If you have pancreas problems, you can have trouble. If you've done anastomosis, you have trouble. You can have appendicitis. These worms will literally force themselves right up through the incisions and stuff as well. So here is a gallbladder where they've opened the duct. You can see that one worm sitting there trying to get out. Uh, this is a, a cholecystitis full of worms. Okay. Uh, the small bowel obstruction. Again, classically, it's going to vary. Uh, in West Africa, I almost never see ascular small bowel obstructions. In uh, Tenwick Hospital, you'll see them once a week uh, on a regular basis. So there's definitely a, a matter of local habits of how they handle their stool, uh, where they defecate, who walks in it, uh, all those other issues that come into it. And we've already mentioned that uh, Contrast studies with gastrograph are probably the most reliable. You can see them on ultrasound, and that's kind of a fun little thing, doing ultrasound and see all these little worms wandering around there. That diagnosis is easy. Uh, we're a little late, so I'm going to skip that. Uh, if you have ascariasis and small bowel obstruction and there's no signs of surgical disease, then you're going to treat them with nasogastric decompression, rehydration, and the debate is whether or not you treat the worms at all. And if you do, do you use piperazine, which we can't even get in North America anymore except for your dogs? Um, but the advantage of piperazine is it just paralyzes them but doesn't kill them, so they can kind of continue to pass on. Or do you really kill them with mobendazole and albendazole, in which case they often will just die into a ball? And so there's a lot of debate. This is a religious argument. There's not good science behind it. Everybody's convinced that their way is the right way. Um, but uh, if you... Uh, can treat them and you get by with it, then, then you've avoided surgery. If you have to operate on them, you literally will find this entire ball of worms underneath there, still moving, still crawling. And so you try to push them through into the cecum if you can. That doesn't seem to work very often in my experience. And you have to open them up and start pulling them out. About a third of the people who present, present uh, they'll need part of their ball resected. This is the little boy, the child pre-op, and you can see the loops of small intestine distended on there, and we pulled out uh, almost a liter worth of these worms, okay? You can tell they're ascaris at the table because they taste different. Um, this is a case where uh, the uh, uh, worm burden was so much that it twisted the intestine, and so it was necrotic, and you get this volvulus. Okay, quick, uh, quick study here. 29-year-old male with 24 hours of marked distension, super umbilical cramping pain, and obstipation. Uh, that should be super pubic uh, cramping pain and obstipation. White count was 12,000, 3% CFM. What's your diagnosis? Yep. What kind of ovulus? Uh, probably not with that big of... That's going to be a sigmoid volvulus. Uh, that classic... Um, they call that the coffee bean, or they call it the bent inner tube, or the horse's butt, uh, whichever way. Um, looking at that uh, is very classic for this. One of the things that we're going to see is this is very common in younger people, especially in certain areas. And it's unclear whether it's really a genetic predilection or they have such high fiber diets that they have such bulky stools that it slowly stretches the gut. But what you get in, get in there is the colon is omega-shaped. Remember, the omega is kind of this. It'll be a very narrow basis, and so this thing can twist easily. 
Uh, sigmoid volvulus in Africa is by far the most common cause of obstruction. Here it's adhesions, there it's going to be sigmoid volvulus. They usually will give you that very quick history of, I was doing fine, and all of a sudden this sudden pain and sudden distension came on as it twisted. They will uh, be totally obstipated. They don't have any stool after that point. Many of them will give you a history that they had this and they moved just right and it suddenly detorsed and so ask for that history. Uh, the worse it gets, of course, the more the nausea and vomiting and destruction occurs with this. The diagnosis is relatively easy. You've got massive distension on physical examination. You do a rectal exam and the stool is empty because the rectum's already emptied itself trying to, to get rid of this blockage. And the classic x-ray we've already seen. Uh, the management, fix their electrolytes, uh, antibiotics, and then you get the junior intern uh, to go do a rigid sigmoidoscopy. Um, with this, you'll take a rigid scope, and as you get to that, carefully advance it, and usually the colon will flip. And when it flips, that entire loop full of gas and stool comes out. So um, you never do this real carefully. It's always kind of like this, and you try to get the intern to do it for you uh, so that you don't have to have it. Uh, once you've got it to decompress, and there's no question, because both the colon and the patient go, ah, you know, um, <laughs> and the wall is now colored. Um, you will put a nasogastric tube or some sort of rectal tube in there and be sure to suture it. Because what you want to do is to allow this colon to kind of come back, get them in better shape, and you're going to end up having to operate on them so that they don't do this again. If this happens to them in the village, they're dead. Um, if they come in with acute surgical disease, obviously you're going to have to operate on them. Um, what you want to do, though, is get them calmed down for a couple of days and then go in there and take that sigmoid out and resect it. Um, and it's usually a pretty easy operation. Some people go in there and say, well, I'm just going to tack it in place so it can't rotate. That's actually very difficult to do and has a high recurrence rate, so I do not recommend it. Uh, most of the time, it's resection and anastomosis. Don't give them a colostomy unless they're so sick that you have no choice because, again, a colostomy in Africa is a disease, not an operation. Uh, the cecum can do the same thing, and the only real difference is that it's more common in females. It's harder to make the diagnosis, and it's real hard to get the rigid sigmoidoscope up there. Um, the uh, flexible scope, you can't do it as a general rule, and so these people are almost always surgical uh, candidates. And because of the blood supply and Laplace's law and all that stuff that you learn, gangrene of the cecum is pretty common. So um, the x-rays are nearly useless. Uh, if you see an x-ray like this, which you only do about one out of five times, that gas, big gas loop in the left upper quadrant is where the cecum is flipped, and when it flipped, it rotated up there. That diagnosis is easy. Sometimes it's just a diagnosis of uh, high suspicion. Um, you can't really decompress them. Uh, this is a case, what I would tell you is if you're having to operate on one, don't put a tube in the cecum. That doesn't work. The success rate is awful, and the infection rate is sky high. Uh, just do a removal of that, of that cecum. Uh, let me skip that and move on. There is such a thing as a double volvulus, which is fascinating. Uh, this is where the sigmoid flips, and in doing so, it brings the small intestine with it. And almost, my experience has been, almost every time they've been dead, the loops. And so it's just a, a real disaster uh, trying to put them together. Um, the x-ray looks like that. Whenever you have something that looks like a sigmoid velocity and small bowel obstruction, you think double volvulus. Those are rare as hen's teeth in the United States. But uh, in the highlands of Kenya, they're very common. And, again, exactly what's going on is unclear. One last quick study. Okay. This is a nine-year-old uh, female, 24 hours of anorexia. She's had increasing abdominal pain and increasing fever. 
When you examine her, she has non-localizing uh, peritonitis. Uh, she has rebound, and, and she guards in all quadrants. What's your differential diagnosis? Typhoid, ruptured what? Appendicitis. Both excellent thoughts. What else? Any kind of perforation might do that, although nine-year-olds have a limited number of options for that. Pig bell. Um, what else? Okay. Sorry. One of the things that you see fairly commonly in Africa, at least compared to here, is primary peritonitis. Uh, these are in, in normal, healthy kids. It's a very rare problem in the United States. It's usually in girls, usually between the age of 6 and 10, and they have diffuse peritonitis. Uh, they don't have any of the real symptoms of appendicitis. They don't have any of these other symptoms. Your x-ray is very nonspecific. And so, again, this is a diagnosis that you have to think about to make the, the uh, um, to make the diagnosis. What would you do if you thought this might be primary peritonitis? How would you make that diagnosis? Well, one thing you could do is operate on them, but that obviously has a downside. Okay, what else? Tap them. Okay, and if you tap these uh, kids, uh, most of the time you'll get a, it's 90% uh, of them are either streptococcus or pneumococcus. So if you get a, gram stain that shows gram-positive cocci or pneumococcus, if you're doing an Indian ink stain, uh, then you, you've got your diagnosis. You don't have to right, operate on them. Give them the right antibiotics, and they get better very, very rapidly. But uh, some of these kids, they're very impressive. If you don't know about this disease, you'll operate on them. Okay. So strep, strep, primary print. And one other thing I'm just going to mention, and, and we'll quit, and that's intussusception. Uh, adult intussusception Kids are a problem because here in the United States, we're going to do a gastrograph and hydrostatic reduction and do a barium enema and send it back. Uh, the problem is because other than the fact that we don't have fluoroscopy, we don't have barium, and we don't have a radiologist, it works pretty well. Um, so it, it's always a problem with kids trying to do a hydrostatic reduction. Uh, but we'll see a lot more adults. In adults, we make the point here in the United States that uh, they, the kids, the lead point is usually – enteric um, lymph nodes, Peyer's patches and so forth that have gotten large or something that's causing. In adults, there's almost always an anatomical problem. And so uh, in, although it's more common in these uh, kids, uh, there's, there's much more surgical pathology uh, for some reason. And so in a susception in adults, keep that in mind okay, as you go as a, as a possible diagnosis. Our time is up. Uh, thank you very much for your attention and uh, appreciate it.